Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word, knowing that it provides for us everything we need for life and godliness. We would ask, Lord, that you would help to solidify your teachings in our mind and that they would not easily depart from us. And for those of us who are in here, Lord, that have good marriages, I pray that you would just remind us all of what our responsibilities are. And for those who are struggling, I pray that it would bring light and hope to their relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been covering three issues, and those three issues are relationship, riches, and respect. And I've spent some time on relationship, and I've given you the scriptures, and really on the scriptures, I want you guys to remember where these sections are. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, it's Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, also going into Ephesians chapter 6, and it is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The love chapter is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, and also the Song of Solomon for the more romantic side of the relationship. And if, if, if you write those down in the front of your Bible, if you're having problems in your marriage, I would say just go through and read those again. Know what your responsibilities are, not what the responsibilities of your spouse are, but your responsibilities. What are your responsibilities as far as marriage is concerned? Now, we went through marriage, relationships, and also I gave you six resets and reinforcements, and I've given to you those twice, but all marriages struggle at some point. There, if you're married you're going to have an argument eventually. Uh, you may not have it for the first six weeks or six months or even six years, but you will have an argument. And that argument may crescendo in an all-out, not a physical brawl, but a yelling, and I'm not talking at that point. I've talked about this last week. But we always have to keep in mind that Jesus and his word are the standard for marriage, and we don't want to look at other couples and say, you're my standard for what a good marriage is. Now, I've done that in the past, and I, I think it's good. If you find a couple that is doing well, and they seem to be harmonious in their marriage, and there doesn't seem to be too much deception as far as that's concerned, you can look to them and see how they handle things. And by the way, if you do have a good marriage like that, people are just going to look at you. They're going to say, well, what are you doing in your marriage? And what can I learn from you and how do you handle it and you might even start referring to that person or that couple say well they would never do something like that wives have you ever done that with a husband of somebody else he would never do that you don't want to go there or as a guy you certainly don't want to point to somebody else's wife well she would never do that it, i mean that's just arguments waiting to happen and you don't want to go in that direction or in that area and so jesus is the one who holds the standard. He, he gives us perfect instruction on how to have a near-perfect relationship in marriage. Now, when it comes to marriage, if you were to scale it on a 1 to 10, now, 10 would be, in our estimation, what is reasonable. Not that everything is going to be perfect because we're imperfect people. But I think you can have a 9 or a 10 if after all the years of getting through the rigmarole and you go into a mature stage of love, you're getting along and you're doing what you're supposed to and you're still going to have disagreements, but the marriage is good. You've, you've had a good run, so to speak. 
And you have to judge your marriage. You have to say on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you as a couple? And even other couples, you know, if a guy needs some prayer for some stuff or a woman needs some prayer for some stuff, we should gather around them and just say, hey, I'm going to pray for you and your marriage. I know you guys are having some difficulty. Or just pray that God blesses your marriage a little more. But on a scale from 1 to 10, you have to say, well, is it a solid 5? 5 is like, average for the world right i believe christian marriages marriages of those who are disciples of jesus christ should be seven or above and that's because an individual has learned what it is to love an individual has learned what it is to die to themselves and to live for the other and so it should vacillate somewhere between seven and ten you're going to have ten sometimes and seven sometimes but it should never sink down to two or three or four, simply because we follow the counsel that Jesus gave us. Now, in history, how many of these godly men that we recognize from of old have had wonderful marriage or marriages? You know, I think you might be surprised on some of these guys who are considered spiritual giants with their wives. I have a list, and I'm going to read through this list for you. John Wesley and his wife, Molly, it was characterized as and I quote, a terrible marriage, much of it was Wesley's fault. Let me read you what a couple of authors say. John Wesley claims God's will started his marital disaster. Wesley's marriage with Mary, also nicknamed Molly, was a rocky road. They got married in 1751, split up in 1758, and then proceeded to split up and get back together until his wife Molly left him for good in 1771. Away from home, Wesley instructed his wife to remain plain. Wesley would spend long periods of time away from his wife with young female admirers from the church. Wesley's inordinate amount of travel left his wife feeling jealous and neglected. It didn't help that he spent or he was spending an ample amount of time with young women of the church while his wife was left at home feeling spurned. This eventually developed into a pretty nasty situation. Out of retribution, she even released some of his private messages to his enemies so they could publicly insult him. In a letter exchange, Wesley tells his wife her life is meaningless and to remain insignificant. And this is what it goes on to say. In retaliation to his wife releasing his personal information, Wesley said the following He reminded her that she had laid to his charge things that he knew not, robbed him, betrayed his confidence, revealed his secrets, given him a thousand treacherous wounds, and made it her business so to do, under the pretense of vindicating her own character. Whereas, said he, of what importance is your character to mankind? If you were buried just now, or if you had never lived, what loss would it be to the cause of God? This is John Wesley. Now, John Wesley had a brother, Charles, and Whitfield. Whitfield is uh, charged, so to speak, with the creation of Methodism. And these three guys were all pals, and they were all around the same time at Benjamin Franklin, and all of these guys were huge back then. But John Wesley had a terrible marriage, and he lost his wife. Now, if you're talking to your wife like that, men, and by the way, I want to give equal time to men today. 
because I, you know, I, I didn't want to be too hard on the women. I just wanted to state things the way that they were. But today I'm going to give some time to the men. And so Charles Wesley, or excuse me, John Wesley had a terrible marriage, but also George Whitfield, he wasn't doing much better. George Whitfield and his wife, Elizabeth James, it says, quote, he really married to have a housekeeper. This is what it says when one author says, he pointedly asked her, can you, when you have a husband, be as though you had none and be willingly part or willingly part with him, even for a long season when his Lord and master shall call him forth to preach the gospel? In other words, I want to get married, but I could be gone for years. Is that okay with you? I don't know. Jonathan Edwards, too, and Sarah Pierpoint. You know, Jonathan Edwards, he was a giant in the Reformed movement. He was huge. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's one of his sermons. Every person in a Reformed seminary has to read through Jonathan Edwards and his, his um, sermons that he gave. One author described Sarah, his wife, as limpy, needful, grotesque, jabbering, hallucinating, idiotically fainting. She calls it a breaking point and attributes it to Sarah's previously or previous stoicism, her coping with her difficult husband and many children, the financial stresses, Jonathan's criticism of her handling of a certain person, and her jealousy over the success of a visiting pastor while Jonathan was away from home. Dodd says, we can't know if it was a religious transport or a nervous breakdown. She had a tremendously difficult marriage, and she didn't know what to do. She was tossed back and forth, and because of the stresses in her life, especially with such a renowned preacher and teacher as Jonathan Edwards, she really couldn't cope with what was going on. And so their marriage was very difficult, to say the least. It goes on to say, a few years ago, Doreen Moore wrote a gem of a book entitled Good Christians, Good Husbands? Question mark. It deals with three marriages, one ugly, one so-so, and one great. The ugly one was that of John Wesley and Molly, a terrible marriage, much of it Wesley's fault. The so-so was a marriage of George Whitfield and his wife Elizabeth. And there was the sparkling, uncommon union of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Pierpoint. Wow, what a marriage. Now, I, I want to say at this point that there are good stories in every one of these preachers. Some things that they did that were good. But for the most part, their marriages really suffered. And you would think being spiritual giants in the hands of God, that their marriages would be good. Or what about C.T. Studd? You guys familiar with C.T. Studd? You ever heard about him? Priscilla, his wife, she didn't want to marry Studd. But his reply was, You have neither the mind of God nor the will of God on the matter, but I have. And I intend to marry you whether you will or not. So you'd better make up your mind and accept the situation. Well, Priscilla wore a sash that said, United for fight for Jesus on their wedding day. She had a sash across her wedding dress. Eventually, Studd's one-eyed commitment to the mission saw their marriage fall apart. He went to India and eventually to Africa against his wife's wishes, leaving her in England while he was, or while she was his loyal advocate at home. The two grew apart. 
Why wouldn't they? They spent the better part of 20 years in separate countries. When Priscilla visited Stud in the Congo shortly before her death, it was like they were from different worlds and she only stayed 13 days. The United to Fight for Jesus slogan meant that their relationship ended up being more like a business partnership than a marriage. And then another author wrote, but tragically, Stud's zeal consumed both him and those around him. It is impossible to justify his treatment of his wife, leaving her ill and living apart for 18 years. And you think of these guys that did tremendous works for God. At least it appears that they did tremendous works. And some of the reviews about these guys are glowing, like all the fantastic things that they did. But their marriage was the elephant in the room. And no, but back then especially, you did not talk to somebody about their marriage. Their marriage was their own private business. And it is their own private business. But for us as believers, it affects all of us. You know, if some of us in here were to get a divorce, do you think it wouldn't affect the rest of us who are in here? It certainly would. And if there's disagreements and separations and things like that, it would affect all of us. No man is an island. You've heard that expression. And so we want to make sure that we're using Jesus as the standard. These men, even though they did great works for Jesus Christ and his church, they wasted so much of their joy on their miserable marriages. And if you have a miserable marriage, you're, you're going through your ministry and half the time it's going to be a drudgery. So they had to be dealing with that at the same time. Then there's another gentleman, David Livingston. David Livingston was a very poor missionary. He went to Africa and he had one convert. And that convert decided to go back to being polygamous. And so he lost his convert. But what he ended up doing was trying to get a highway so that the gospel could come into Africa. That was his main thing. He was an explorer. And his wife, she would go to Africa too, and on a couple expeditions, she was pregnant twice while going on these expeditions. It's not like today, where you get in a car and you go, you're walking. And the malaria was just everywhere. He's talking about one of his kids. And one of his kids had so many mosquito bites on their body, you couldn't put a finger and not touch one. That's how many mosquito bites were over their bodies. And they had malaria. A couple of the kids died from malaria. Livingston eventually died from that, and and one article said that he actually found a cure for malaria. Uh, I don't think they had DDT back then, but there were, you know, it was a rough go um, over there. Talking about his wife, it says, she is described as not a romantic, mine is not a matter-of-fact lady, a little thick, black-haired girl, sturdy, and all I want. I guess it's a good thing she was not a romantic, for clearly Livingston was not either. He was a disorganized expedition leader. And again, like I said, he was a poor missionary. His wife's name was Mary Livingston or Mary Moffat. And she was quite the explorer herself. Uh, she did accompany her husband on a few uh, of those expeditions. And she is. Uh, buried over in Africa, and uh, many people consider her just a, a tremendously godly woman, but she certainly had uh, a rough go of it. I'm going on uh, describing this Livingston character. He said that he had one regret at the end of his life, 
And he said it was the fact that he did not spend enough time with his children and even his mother-in-law would write letters to him and sign them, I remain yours in great, and I'm going to just use some other words, distress, unrest, distress, alarm, or worry. So his mother-in-law was just fit to be tied over him and his missionary adventures because it, at points, uh, it affected his wife and it affected his children. Then another man, this man, we read his books, A.W. Tozer. And you would think, A.W. Tozer, wow, what a godly man, you know, in the pursuit of God. He had a passion for God, but not for his wife at all. Let me read some of this. Through the decades, Ada, his wife, seemed always to be two steps behind A.W. She had to secure transportation to church services as best she could by depending on others since her husband refused to purchase an automobile. Sometimes she walked a considerable distance to church and arrived shivering from the cold, harsh Chicago winter. Struggling with the elements was only a small part of what Ada had to deal with. Being the one partner who was always home with their seven children, her management skills were honed to the maximum in order to stretch the half-size paycheck to cover daily necessities for the growing brood. Why was this popular preacher's paycheck only half-size? Because A.W. disdained money. He usually returned half of his paycheck back to the church and often refused pay increases to the detriment of his own wife and kids. (coughs) Excuse me. In Lyle Dorsett's biography of Tozer, as he charts Tozer's life, he returns periodically to this theme of Tozer's family. There was virtually no intimacy between A.W. and his wife, Ada. And it wasn't because Ada didn't want to be there, or it's because she didn't want it to be. A.W. threw much of his energy into knowing God and the ministry that grew from that. A.W. was content to relate to his wife at the shallowest of levels, and Ada was hurt by that. A.W. was often inconsiderate of his wife's needs, often spurning raises and giving away money while his wife struggled with the little money that was left to keep hearth and home together. It would be incorrect to say, I think that Tozers grew apart. Rather, they never grew together. The happiest Ada had ever been was after her husband died and she married Leonard Odom. And she writes, I have never been happier in my life Aiden loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard Odin loves me. And so I, I started reading these guys, and I thought, oh, this is a terrible witness. These guys are great for the Lord and everything that they've done, and then you have to balance it. Well, how much of ministry do I get involved in, and how much with my family and my wife do I get involved in? And it behooves us, and this doesn't apply just to pastors. It applies to everybody as men were to balance. Now, you may have a hobby instead of ministry. How much of your hobby do you get involved in as opposed to your wife and family? Are you a a sports enthusiast? Well, that's okay, too. You can be a sports enthusiast, but does that consume you? Is that an idol compared to your family? If your family interrupts you during something like that, like, what if your kids come running through the house? There's an important play. You can't see the touchdown on the screen because they're running past the television. What are you going to do? Oh, children, bless you. Is that what? No, you're probably going to get upset, but you have to make sure you control your anger. And that's one of the things we're going to get to is men have a penchant for going towards anger. 
And we want to make sure that we pull back from that. How is it that godly men had such, a, such miserable marriages? Well, in short, it was just sin and not submitting to God's will for their lives. If they're doing it as God explains it in his scripture, they will, by default, have a good marriage. It would be wonderful if good disciples of Jesus would balance their lives for God with their responsibilities to their wives and children. It is true that some of these men's married lives had their moments of normalcy, but if we are to glean anything from their difficult marriages, it is to be, we are to work at being happily married, and it will always come at a cost to self. That means if you want to be happy in your marriage, you have to work at it and you have to sacrifice as husbands and as leaders. Patty and I were at a a couple's retreat. We've been to, I don't know, over 20 of them. And they would bring in some comic relief from time to time. We would just laugh till we started crying. And this one comic who was up there, and I just saw him coming back from Mexico. I put some Christian comedians on as we we're going through the line. And we listened to the Christian comedians, and it was good. And I continued a couple of days later to listen to it. And this guy showed up who was at the couple's retreat. And one phrase that he is known for is, happy wife, happy life. That's what he says. That's his moniker for his brand of comedy. And so if you want your wife to be happy, you have to pour yourself into her. If you don't pour yourself into her, she's not going to be happy. And the man who doesn't love his wife doesn't love himself. If you want a happy life, you have to make sure that your wife is taken care of. Now, we've covered the women pretty much thoroughly. I I may not be quite finished with them, but I'm, again, going to concentrate on the men. So what specific things should men focus on to improve or reset their marriages? Now, I could have a list that is 50 points long. I'm only going to give you four. Uh, I'm going to save some for the future. But they are control your anger, cultivate leadership, concentrate on financial provision, and continue in love. This idea of controlling anger, one quote, when anger rises, think of the consequences. We rarely do that. And by the way, the person that said that, is Confucius. Now you might say, Pastor, what are you doing quoting Confucius? I want you to learn this phrase. All truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. Now for some, that's a dangerous phrase. But all truth that is out there, all absolute truth, you can trust that it comes from God. There are even secular people that have wise sayings which are out there. But that truth that they quote is from God, even though it's not in Scripture. And we can pay attention to what is good that lines up with Scripture that we know would be a godly attribute or a godly axiom or some godly saying. We can hold on to that. And so even when somebody like Confucius, who I do not believe is going to be in heaven, I believe he will be judged like every other non-believer. He has a few words of wisdom. And remember, that wisdom or that truth always comes from God. When anger rises, think of the consequences. Also, Isaac Asimov, a science fiction writer, he wrote, violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Now that, I don't know if you recognize that, is an insult. It's like you're so incompetent, you have to just go to the fleshly idea of anger and violence. You're not smart enough to handle it properly. 
or you're just unwilling, which means you're acting, and the word would be stupidly. You're acting stupidly if you go towards anger and violence. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of men who have put their fists through walls or through lockers or have had to get their hand cast because they hit something like a rock. You know, that's really smart, you know, to hit something like that. But men have a tendency to give themselves over to anger. By the way, this is why men make good warriors. It's because they can channel that anger into such a way. This is also why they do good at work. Because if they get angry, you know how much they get accomplished sometimes if they're angry? If they're working under this, and they, they start putting everything together and they line it up and then they make a mistake and they yell a little bit louder like that. Mark Twain. Now, this is not something you should do. But Mark Twain said, if you're angry, count to four. Then he said, if you're really angry, cuss. Which, don't, because we always already know Colossians chapter 3 says don't. I think it's verse 8. We're to put away the filthy language from us. We're not to be given over to cussing. If you're cussing, men, if you're cussing, you've lost it already, and you're resulting in incompetence. You're resting in incompetence. You don't know how to control your anger. And by the way, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control if you have the holy spirit you're able to channel that right and that's what we're supposed to do as believers james chapter 1 verse 19 says my dear brothers take note of this everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry men a lot of times we're just slow instead of being quick to listen we want to answer before something has been said now i've done that you know i i I know it's like this I know what you're going to say. I know where you're going to go. I want to cut you off. I'm going to give you the answer, and you're going to like it. That, that's kind of how men operate. We already know what's going on. Why do I have to sit and listen to what? And we get impatient. I already know the answer to this, and I'm going to give you the answer. Just listen to me. You know, you do something like that. And if, if you're not careful, you lose this ability to follow Scripture. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. You want a long fuse. Now, it doesn't mean you can't ever become angry. But in your anger, do not sin. There are good reasons to become angry. And there are stupid reasons to become angry. Normally, what causes fights and quarrels among you? James chapter 4. You should remember that passage too. What fi- what constitutes a fight it's where you're arguing back and forth what causes it because we are not getting what we want when we want it It, it, do you get upset if you go through a fast food uh, drive-through and it takes 20 minutes what about starbucks if it takes more than 15 minutes do you you start getting a little impatient waiting in line because my coffee isn't here and it's been 50 or they forget they forget your coffee does that make you happy You know, customer service is going to be something you're going to be involved with over the Christmas season if you're buying anything. How much patience are you going to garner during that time? And how much are you just going to find yourself getting angry? And by the way, we're all subject to that. It goes on to say in James chapter 1, verse 20, For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so anger is our enemy in most cases. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So men, we also know that in the New Testament it says, we are not to be harsh with our wives. 
I'll bet there is not one man in here who has been married or been in a relationship that hasn't snapped at his wife for whatever reason. You're busy. I'm busy. Can't you see I'm, and you want to talk to me? I am busy, especially in the age of cell phones. You pull out that cell phone, there's something that interests you on that cell phone much more than what your wife has to say or uh, uh, you're in a relationship. And so that can be, a, are you going to talk on your phone? Like, is that a question or is that a statement? Are you talking to me clearly? Why don't you just ask me to put down the phone? Do you see how these things work? The women don't talk directly. Are you going to look at that phone right now? What does that mean? It means put down the phone, right? But she's going to say it. Are you going to look at that phone now? She doesn't speak directly. And so a man, his task, instead of getting angry at something like that, is just simply say, you want me to put down the phone? Oh, that'd be nice, right? And so you put down the phone, that type of thing. And we want to make sure that we don't snap back at our wives. Now, like I said, I think we are all guilty at this at some point. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-four says, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. I I remember being in Home Depot once, and a guy was in line, and the lines were long, and he had absolutely nothing good to say. He started turning to everybody in these lines and just complaining about everything. And yesterday, I'm in Home Depot yesterday, and I can't believe what I'm hearing. I go, what? What is that? It's a goose. Somebody brought their goose into Home Depot, and it's honking. And I'm going, no, somebody didn't bring their comfort pet into Home Depot. That's a goose. And this thing is just trumpeting. I mean, just going off. And everybody's looking up like, what in the world? And, you know, I go by the checkout lines, and here's this goose. Honk, you know, the thing is honking, and he's got it by the neck, and it's in this basket. And one guy walks by, and he has some expletives. His eyes are rolling in his, I can't believe it. He just, and he wanted to say it loud enough to where everybody heard it. You know, and some people were just, oh, a goose, you know, let's touch the goose. And he was real happy to let people touch the goose. And the other people were going, are you kidding me? Men don't bring geese into Home Depot. Anyhow, so, you know, that anger can come out at different times, and we just want to make sure that we get it under control. Proverbs 29, verse 8 says, Mockers stir up a city, but wise men turn away anger. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Ephesians 4, 31, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. Okay, I I do have a question I'd like to see some hands on. How many men in here have never been in a fist fight? (laughs) There is not one man in here. There's one? Oh, okay. There's one. It is the nature of men to get angry and to fight. That's what we do. Now, our society would like to take that out of us. I wouldn't want to take it out. I just want us to direct it. Direct it to where it needs to go. Now I do have a question too. How many women have never been in a fist fight? Oh, that's good. 
The other ones, we can have a talk afterwards, you know, but the, <laughs> you know, but that's our society. We, we'd rather fight than switch to a particular view, you know, and, and so all of us have been there at one particular time, but God says, let's bring it under control. First Timothy 2.8 says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. This was written by Paul to Timothy, to the people in the church. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. In other words, in the church of Ephesus that Timothy was pastoring, there was arguing, anger, disputing going on inside the church. Imagine that. Inside the church. And so it is our bent to go to anger and to go to fighting and to go to brawling and to go to disharmony and disunity, all of those things, that is our bent. And guess where it gets acted out the most? It's in our households. It's in our marriages. It's in our relationships. And so we want to make sure that we follow what Jesus says in this. And by the way, these other men of renown, if they would put even these verses that I just read into practice, they would have had wonderful marriages. And we haven't even gotten to the rest of these items. The next one is cultivate leadership. Now, where would you exercise leadership? And this is for all men. This isn't for just a few. We are to exercise or cultivate leadership with our wives, with our family, with our friends, and with society. Now, with our wives, we represent God to our families. We must be an example of firmness and determination, all the while having these wrapped in love, grace, mercy, and kindness. In other words, we have to know where we're going, when we're going, why we're going, and how we're going to do things that the Lord wants us to do. Whether it's loving our family, whether it's loving society, whether it's loving our friends, when it's time to oppose, when it's time to go along with the flow, all of those things God expects us as men to do. If we take that leadership and we cast it to the side, we are neglecting our calling as disciples. Our wives should be looking to us saying, yeah, I don't have to worry about it because my husband's going to make the decision. He's the one that's responsible to God after all. He's the one that's going to have to give an account and I just need to submit to his decision. Now, some women would say, that is so sexist. That you would say that. Now, it's not that the wife doesn't offer all the counsel. It's that the man is responsible before God to lead. Now, I'm going to read this again. I've already read it to you, but I just want to remind you, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus Christ crucified, allowed himself to be crucified in order for the church to thrive. Husbands need to crucify themselves in order for their wives to survive. It goes on to say, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now, Patty and I, we don't have a Bible study every night. It's every other night. Just kidding. It's not even every other night. But we will sit down and we'll talk about scripture. She'll come and ask me a question. I'll go, you know, that's a good, or I'll just have the answer for her. Either one. And then she'll go, well, I I don't know about that one. And I'll say, well, this is true. And we'll go on 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 
or we'll continue to talk about it off and on during a day. And so we'll have these subjects that we go through. And sometimes, most of the time we end up agreeing, sometimes we don't when it comes to Scripture. And that's okay. She'll eventually come around to what's right. You know. I just had to throw that in, Patty, you know. <laughs> because that's another thing that we're prone to as men is pride. You know, we just want to be right. And after all, we do want to be right. And our wives want us to be right, except when they don't. Right? Isn't that how it works? They want us to be right. They want us to set direction, except when they don't want us to be. And how do you know the difference? You don't. You will at that moment when it takes place and you'll find out, well, she doesn't exactly agree with this. And, you know, that's just part of marriage. And everybody experiences this. This isn't anything new or anything that would take you by surprise. It goes on to say, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. See, he feeds and cares for his wife. That is a responsibility given to us by Jesus Christ through the apostle Paul to Timothy and the church of Ephesus. That's what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be, quote-unquote, breadwinners. Now, some would say, well, what if he's not? Well, he needs to be. He needs to do something to gain an income. And I know that this can be offensive. By the way, I have seen this for years and years and years, where guys will just become complacent. They even made movies about it, Mr. Mom, you know, that type of thing. A father is not as good of a nurturer as a mother. And especially if you have small children, it is good for the mother to be there because the father will just bark orders. The mother will be nurturing to the young kids. The father gets frustrated. Have you ever seen the fathers change the diapers with the gas mask on and the hood and the gloves and all that? And they're still dry heaving while they're doing that. If you haven't seen those videos, you've got to see those videos. Anyhow, the, the differences between men are, and women are instilled in us by God. And if the woman accepts her roles as God has spelled it out and the man accepts his role as God has spelled it out, it will be good. You will have a good marriage. It's when we want to go the way of the world. I I saw, I like to look at um, upcoming previews of movies. I, I just like to know what's out there. And I was watching one with Denzel Washington. I, I forget the name of the movie. It's coming up. And he, uh, he was addressing people in a group and there were two women standing up against this pole inside the room and all these men were sitting down. And he said, man, it would be nice if you would give up your chairs for these ladies who are standing. And these two ladies just folded arms and said, that's so sexist. And he goes, no, but it would be nice. And they said, that's so sexist. And he says it again, no, but it would be nice to do that. And society wants to redefine our roles. They want to make masculine the women and they want to feminize the men. I think the distinctions are fine just the way they are. Let men be men and let women be women. It is appealing to both to be that way. You know what they discovered in England with cameras on the trains looking at women and who women were looking at? They looked at the young muscular, well-dressed men. Imagine that. They spent time on this study discovering that women like to look at 
good-looking men who were well-dressed and had a little bit of money. If you're not well-dressed, if you don't really take care of yourself, you know, if you're more like a couch potato, that type of thing, your wife is probably not going to be too drawn to you. And we, everything that we do has to be in the mode of sacrifice. And we want to do this for our wives' sake. We want to make sure that we're remaining healthy for our wives' sake, that we're remaining, remaining sharp as a tack, that we are investigating, that we are diligent in the responsibilities that we have, and that will help our wives. But, you know, oftentimes as men, we like to err our own opinions. Now, you men, remember we were sitting up here on a Thursday night, and I said, so how do we solve the homeless problem? Because we were talking about ethics and morality and all of that. And we started, we embarked on this conversation, and I stopped at least three times. Do you remember what I said three times? I said, what is your scripture to back up your view? Now, we had several different views, and some of them were scriptural, and some weren't so scriptural. But I said three times, what is your scripture for backing up your views? And inevitably, as men, we will gravitate to our own opinions rather than what God says. And God wants us to go back to his word and say, this is why I hold this opinion, because this scripture says it. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, it says, if a man will not work, he will not what? Eat. In other words, if you're a lazy bum, you're not going to eat. And when I'm talking about a lazy bum... All I'm talking about is a guy who refuses to work. I'm not talking about the guy who can't. There are plenty of men who cannot work, who cannot provide in that kind of way. And I get that. And there's always exceptions to the the general rule there. But it's just the guy who is being slack. And God calls us as men not to be slack, not to be wasters of our time. And so that, that is, we don't want to air our own opinions on these things. We don't want to be slack. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. And what you can say to a guy who wants to offer his own opinions, say, you know what the book of Proverbs says about that? In a nice way, with a smile. Going on, family. We're supposed to be leading our family. I, I want you guys to open up your Bibles. You need to do this. Open up your Bibles, and I want you to turn to the book of Proverbs, and I want you to just follow along here. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote most of these, and he's talking to his son or his sons. He's offering advice. He's offering wisdom, and as fathers, we're supposed to do that. Now, if I digress a little bit, and I talk about these men who are great evangelists and theologians, they didn't spend time with their kids. Uh, One of the couples, they were only together for four years out of 17. Another was only together two out of 18 together, and so we need to be offering instruction to our children. We need to provide leadership. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. So this is a father talking to his son. Turn over to Proverbs 2, 1. Next page. My son, if you accept my words, and he goes on a rant of what he's supposed to do. Turn over to Proverbs 3, verse 1. 
My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commandments in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Turn over to Proverbs 3.11. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, a son he delights in. Proverbs 3.21 says, My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1. Listen, my sons, to your father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. Proverbs 4.10. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. It goes on. Verse 20 of chapter 4, Proverbs 5.1, Proverbs 6.20, Proverbs 7.1, Proverbs 7.24. Over and over and over, the father is instructing his sons on what to do. That is our task to do that. Now, you might say, well, my son's kind of old. He's out of the house. You have grandchildren? Instruct your grandchildren. Just this last week, I was talking to my granddaughter. These are some life lessons for you. I've repeated these to you before. I want you to remember these. And by the way, it's not just for sons. It's for the children. You instruct your daughters and you instruct your sons. It's our responsibility as men. Now, the women do that, too. That's fine. We both work together. But specifically in Scripture, the man is saying, listen to your father and listen to your mother. We are supposed to give that kind of instruction. And then also with friends. We are to provide, we are to provide leadership for our friends and acquaintances. Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. As men, we may not have many friends. We may be solitary in our environments. And that may be okay, but when there is a need and you know somebody is need, in need, it is our job as men to come in and help. Proverbs seventeen seventeen: a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. In other words, a brother will come in at a time where there is distress and he will be there to help. I am so impressed by the people of Texas and Louisiana and these places that we have gone, uh, Mississippi and New Jersey, how these neighbors just get together. These men, they start bringing out their chainsaw, cutting trees away, moving this stuff, get access going. And it's not the government. It's just the men who get out there. And women too, they get out there. But the men, they do the heavy lifting, which is out there. So we're supposed to provide leadership for our friends and society. Philippians 2 says, consider others better than yourselves. Or James chapter 2, verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accomplished by action or accompanied by action, is dead. And so we're supposed to be doing these things. If all we're doing is involved in either a video game or a book or a hobby or something else, and we're not providing leadership in these four areas, we are neglecting our job. God never wanted us to be sequestered with our own little world. He wanted us to reach out. I'm running out of time here. I might have to talk about the men more next week. Now, Proverbs, or excuse me, Matthew also says, go and make disciples. We know this from Matthew chapter 28. Verse 19 through 20. Men, you may not think that you're capable, but you are. If you become a disciple, you know what God requires. If you know what God requires, you can instruct others. That's making a disciple. You should always strive to be under somebody, to become a better disciple, and to have somebody under you to help them, no matter who it is. If it's a grandchild, if it's a young person, it's a friend, it's, if it's somebody, a new convert to, to Christ, 
no matter who it is, we're supposed to be making disciples. You can't do that unless you know God's word. You can't know God's word unless you're in it, unless you're going to a Bible study, unless you're attending church on a regular basis. If somebody is just a CEO Christian, that's Christmas, Easter only. If they're a CEO Christian, they are not growing. I can promise you they are in infancy and will remain there forever. We have to make sure that as men, we actually die to our own desires, go to these studies, attend church, get involved. And it's not only for our sake, it's for the sake of everyone around us, and it provides leadership for those who may be waning. Now, concentrating on financial power is the third one, but I'm out of time. And so I'm going to talk about this next week, about finances, about you know, what are the men and the women supposed to do with their finances? Are they just supposed to spend wildly and rack up the credit cards and then declare bankruptcy and seven years later repeat? You know, that type of, is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to save up? Are we not supposed to save? Are we supposed to spend all we have? And there are more disagreements usually in a marriage over finances than over anything else. So let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing uh, on your word. It is just so full of insight and I, I pray that we would be motivated by your spirit to do what is right, to not neglect these things, that we would find a way daily to crucify ourselves because we know, Father, as you have told us, that, that godliness has benefit not only for this life but for the next. So we are in training for the next life. Help us in this, Lord. Help us to not be neglectful. Help us to willingly submit to you and the promptings of your spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.